Well, all right. So I've already kind of said it, but we're starting something new today, and we're calling this the Fundamentals of the Family. And this is something we've been talking about as pastors for a while uh, that we've uh, wanted to do is really put together something that we can... Uh, that we can teach continually, kind of like we do Fundamentals of the Faith. I don't know if you guys have taken Fundamentals of the Faith, but we, we just uh, constantly have those classes going. We have enough people sign up. We start a new class, and it really just teaches the, the doctrines of, of uh, the Word, um, who is God, who is Christ, uh, what is the church, what is salvation. Uh, and those, it's just a very helpful class. Uh, this, we're praying, will, will be the same thing, um, but this is a focus on the family, which that would have been a great title, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but we're calling this the fundamentals of the family, and basically we're going to be talking about, you know, what is marriage, uh, what are the roles of the husband, what are the roles of the wife, um, what are the roles for us as parents, uh, we're going to talk about uh, communication, conflict resolution, uh, financial stuff, uh, and, and, and intimacy, and so... Uh, and Lord willing, we're going to try What we're trying to do as well, and um, I've got some people helping me. Actually, I, I would love all your help on this. So what we're going to, what, this, you're the guinea pigs, and this is the, the trial run. So I'm teaching through it, and as I'm teaching through it, uh, I'm trying to create some, some notes. Uh, one of the things I want to find out is there's way too many blanks, or it wasn't very clear, or you know what I mean? So I'd love your feedback. Um, and then, uh, and then I got my, my teacher notes that are going to go alongside it. And what I'm trying to do is, you know, when I usually make, I was telling, um, uh, Trina, like, this is not my, this is not, I mean, I have my notes and I'm using my notes and I know what my notes mean. But if I handed you my notes, you'd be like, so what did you mean by that? You know, but here I'm trying to create something that I could hand this to anybody and they go, oh, that makes sense. And then this makes sense. So if that makes sense, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to work out, trying to refine it a little more. So, so like I said, it's going to be a little bit different. The other thing, too, is when we offer this class, it's, it's also going to be one of those things. I'm, I'm used to just preaching, but this is much more teaching. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I do want to open it up to if you have questions or, or something like that um, to, to raise your hand and ask questions. But that's also going to be different uh, for me. Um, I taught middle school here at the school for years, but it's just a whole different mode when you go into preaching mode than teaching mode. And so I'm trying to ride that line of like, where am I and what am I doing here? So, so anyway, so that's what's going on. So that, I'll, do we need more notes? I don't have any more today, but just for next week, because I printed 40 copies, but did, is there anybody that didn't get a set of notes? Or? There weren't enough? Okay. So I'll do, maybe I'll do like 60 next week. I didn't know how many we had in here. It's hard. I don't know if you're like that. When people ask you how many people, like how many people showed up for youth group or how many people are at class, I mean, I look at this, I'm like, I don't know, maybe 20 or 60. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, yeah. I just did a head count back there for hospitality questions. We got about almost 50 people. 50, okay. So I'll, I'll print 60 for next week because I think this is about normal. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Like I said, I'm going to try to stick to the notes because, and I've got yours up here too, so I can... Hopefully this will work. <laughs> All right, so, but this is fundamentals, uh, the fundamental foundations of a godly family. When I started this, I actually was starting with the basics of marriage, and the more I was kind of digging into that and building that, uh, I, I got up to a Thursday evening and realized I, there, there's something else that we need to talk about before we get into the basics of marriage, and that's the foundations behind all of this. 
Uh, namely, that you've got to be born again, and you must be walking in faithfulness and holiness, uh, and you've got to be spirit-filled, and you've got to be practicing submission, both to Christ, to your elders, to uh, one another. Uh, and, um, and so anyway, so this is before the basics of marriage, because this is the guts or the foundation uh, on which everything else um, uh, sits. And so this is the, uh, so session one will be the fundamental foundations. And really, if you want to open your Bibles, we're, going to do, we're just looking at Ephesians. We're, looking at, we're going to just do a, a, a fast run through Ephesians to get us up to Ephesians 5, which really begins tackling roles of husbands and wives and, and parents. And, but like, you can't jump into all that before you talk about all this. Um, we used to do something out in California. Uh, every summer, our pastor would do something, and he would, he would kind of rotate between uh, three different things. Uh, one was like uh, uh, the, the, I can't remember what he called it, but basically all the biblical places it talks about marriage, and he would look through that. Uh, the other one, I don't remember the title of that one either, but the one I do remember is called Marriage Tune-Up, and it was a really good, uh, just, it's kind of like what we're doing here, but it was just focused on, uh, maintaining your marriage, uh, examining your marriage, finding uh, the, the thing that needs maintenance. And he actually said in one of his little pamphlets that he handed out to us, and I quoted him because I thought it was a good quote, but he said, marriage is kind of like an automobile. It needs regular maintenance. Usually when cars are new, they don't need too much fixing, uh, but you, you just need to learn how to operate them correctly. And when your car is new, you're usually extra careful with it. You drive it carefully, you keep it clean, you don't abuse it by hot-rodding it, and most people are diligent to keep up on routine maintenance. But as they get older, it gets easier and easier to forget to keep it maintained. You wait too long to change the oil and have it lubed. You don't change the air filter. You don't check the tire pressure or have the tires rotated when you should. You, don't dry, or you drive it a little bit harder, and you don't treat it with kindness. After all, it has scratches, tears, dings, and problems that it didn't have when it was new. Other new models start looking better, uh, and you begin to take your car for granted, thinking that it will run when you want it to, and that you don't need to maintain it because it's always worked before. But for those who don't regularly maintain their cars, the inevitable happens. It breaks down. Usually, it breaks down at the worst possible time. Sometimes, it is something small, and sometimes it may be very costly to get it fixed. But no matter how much it costs to get it fixed, it's always an inconvenience, and it usually makes life miserable until you get it repaired. Marriages are like cars. Because when couples are newly married, they tend to treat each other with more respect, more care, and more kindness. They're constantly thinking of their mate and how to keep them maintained. There's always an adjustment time when you're trying to figure out how your spouse works and what makes them run and what makes them stall and quit. But for the most part, things usually run smoothly at first because both people are working hard at maintaining their marriage. Uh, But just like people uh, take their cars for granted, it's also common for couples to begin to take each other for granted. And after a while, they assume and presume that their spouse is going to run fine uh, and do what they want. Well, if marriages uh, aren't properly maintained, the inevitable usually happens. They break down. There are fights, conflicts, cold wars, selfish fits, and these are usually warning signs that unless some maintenance is done, the engine is going to blow up. And in our society, most people get rid of their old cars when the engine goes. But most uh, most people don't want to consider the fact that even if their engine is blown, it can be rebuilt and made to run just like new again. And so... 
I just thought that was a great analogy, and it was the preface, like I said, to this whole marriage tune-up that we would do all the time. And Lord willing, like I said, this will be something that will be a blessing to our church as we uh, refine this and, and, and do it more and more. But we're all here, and we're all here in different places. Some of us are here, and you're just getting going. You're just married. You're just getting started. Uh, sometimes you're, you're just getting started, and you don't know what the Bible says, and you're looking where to go. I remember when Kinsey and I first came to this church. We actually had great premarital counseling in, in California, but we're still green, and I uh, was still new to the faith, new to being a, a young husband, and I would go to my pastors all the time, just asking, like, you know, what do I do? Here's the situation around. What do I do? You know, and it was, it was so crazy, because Shane would just know, he'd be like, well, Colossians 3 says, Ephesians 5. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, how do you know where it is? I mean, I'm reading the Bible, but, and so that could be some of you. You're just like, I want to, I want to have a, a godly marriage. I want to do well, but I don't know where to go. Some of you are, are new to this, and you've had great counsel. You've been immersed in the church, grown up in the church, but you, you're still growing and learning. For some of us, it's been a while. And, uh, and we're here because we need a tune-up. We need maintenance. Sometimes you don't know you need maintenance until you see someone, uh, you know, a mechanic go through the, the car and be like, well, this, is, this needs to get fixed and this needs to get fixed. And so, Lord willing, as we're reading the Word together, we'll see things that we're like, I'm not diligent about that. You know, I used to, I used to diligently think that way or do that, you know, and it'll help us. And then there are some that are teetering on the edge. It's not going well at all. You see the danger signs. You see the smoke. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and you may even be at the place where you're like, you know it's falling apart, and you're desperate. So I don't know where you are personally right now, but I know that the Word of God is sufficient for everything, which is, I think, where your notes start. Uh, the good news for all of us, no matter where you're at, is that the Word of God is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness, which includes our marriages and our children, our families. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for this purpose, so that the man of God may be equipped, having, uh, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And 2 Peter 1, 2 through 8 says this, He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Actually, he keeps on going to say, by this he's granted to us these precious, magnificent promises, talking about the truth of his word, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. And for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, you supply moral excellence and moral excellence, knowledge and knowledge, self-control and your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness and your godliness, brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God has given us everything that we need in his word pertaining to everything in life and godliness and holiness, how to follow him, how to live for him. And if we would be diligent to trust in what he says, to put these things into practice, uh, then he will grow uh, uh, um, grow us in, in, in moral excellence, which means in, in righteousness and goodness, uh, in our knowledge of these things. We grow in self-control, which will cause us to persevere, which will cause us to be more godly, which will cause us to be more loving to one another. And the, the end result of that is true love, which is what we need all the time. 
It doesn't matter if you're single or married. This is the call for us, to love one another as Christ has loved us and to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But again, that doesn't happen magically, you know? Um, we, we think sometimes we're just going to pray and then magically all of a sudden we'll be self-controlled, gentle, patient, loving people. But the Lord purposefully puts us in places that we have, to, he, it forces us to practice the things that he's called us to be, which is what we just talked about in there with trials and what all of us have experienced in our marriages. So uh, it, it is the hard times that are actually the good times. And it's the hard times that cause us to become more like Christ. And he's given us everything we need in his word. So we're going to look at four fundamental foundations of a godly family. And, uh, and the first foundation that we're going to look at today is uh, the first fundamental foundation of a godly family. Your first blank is salvation. We must be born again. A fundamental, fun, fundamental just means it's essential. It's a basic uh, uh, foundational principle. Uh, it's, it's the primary or original source. It's important. It's crucial. It's necessary. It's the underlying thing. It's integral. It's indispensable. And so when we talk about these foundation stones that our marriages must be built on, these are the things that are essential. You can't have a godly marriage without God in your heart doing the work, without you being born again, made alive, and your eyes being open to see that his truth is what you need. And so the, uh, you must be, the next blank, you must be in Christ, and Christ must be in you. You must be in Christ, and Christ must be in you. If you have your Bibles open, we're starting right out the gate. We're not going to read all of Ephesians, but I'm going to hit some main points. But the first thing, uh, the foundation of our salvation, if you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, Paul begins the book of Ephesians talking about the salvation of these believers. And he says in, in uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Look at, while we're reading this, look at how many times he says in Christ or through Christ or in Jesus. All right, so first thing, all the spiritual blessings in Christ, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved, which is Christ. In Christ, or in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us all in wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, in Christ, for an administration of the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heaven, things on earth, in him, in Christ. Uh, Then he says, in him, again, in Christ, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So for us to be in Christ, there are things that the, the, the Lord must do. And the first thing, the next blank is we must be in Christ. Nine times in ten verses, he like hammered down, we must be in Christ. And, 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 and if we are in Christ, then we have everything we need for all that we're going to talk about when it comes to having a, a godly marriage. Uh, secondly, in, in verse 4, he says that we must, uh, he must make us a new creation. He must make us a new creation. You have to be made holy. 
made blameless. There has to be a a new person there in order to do the things that we're going to talk about. The third thing that we learn in those verses is that he must make us uh, children of God. Uh, In Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. We're made children of God. And he says that he is causing all of those children to be made more and more into the image of his son so that he would be one amongst many brethren. So that's part of what he's doing. And, and he's using relationships, especially the marriage relationship and, and the relationship we have with our children, to do that for all those who belong to him. The next thing, or the next blank, uh, he must redeem us by the blood of Christ. You must be purchased. You must be ransomed. You must be redeemed. And the only thing that can redeem us is the blood of his son. And you must be redeemed. The next one is he must forgive our sins. Verse 7. You must have your sins forgiven, and you do have your sins forgiven if you believe in Jesus Christ. And, and part of that is if your sins have been forgiven, if you've been forgiven eternal, the eternal weight of the, the, the judgment that you deserve, then there will never be anything that your spouse could ever think, say, or do against you or toward you that would warrant anything less than full forgiveness after you've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. The next blank is, he must give us wisdom and insight. We're dependent on what his word says. He's revealed these things to his children, to his people, through his word. But we are dependent on it, and we must have his wisdom and his insight. Again, uh, when we lean on our own own understanding, uh, rather than trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts, then we're always going to take the wrong path. We have to trust him. Uh, The next one is, uh, he must reveal to us his will. And again, we have that in his word, and he's given that to us, uh, but we are dependent on what he says in his word. The next thing in verse 10 is we must fix our minds on the end. We just got done with Revelation, so we've been talking about this a lot. But you have to think uh, on what is happening at the very end. Here he tells us that all these things will be summed up in Christ in the fullness of time. Everything in him, everything on earth, uh, and in him we've been made an inheritance. And so when we start thinking about the end... It helps you to focus on what's in the moment, you know. And so a lot of times the problems in our marriage just seem so big. But then you start thinking about who's, you know, if you're looking at your wife, this is his daughter. He's refining her. Give him time. Let him do his work. One day she will be glorified together with Christ. You're looking at yourself. You think that way. You look at the issues and you're like, okay, this is purpose for that end. All of this is going to make us into the image of Christ. All of this is going to be for for, uh, for his glory, for our reward. And so if you're looking at the end, it helps you to have clarity in the moment. Because when we're in the moment, it just seems impossible. It seems dark. It seems, it seems like we're in a hole that's too deep, you know. Um, and so being focused on the end helps. And then uh, we must remind ourselves of the big picture. Same concept. Ultimately, and, you know, this is something I think, we, maybe we didn't say it in here. I, I feel like I said it in Revelation. But if you look at the big picture, you know, think about this. I mean, you can, you can look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you can look at John 17, when you just start talking about what God is doing. Ultimately, your salvation is wrapped up in the fact that God loves His Son and the Son loves the Father. And the, the God the Father is making a perfect, spotless bride for His Son. And the Son is going to be glorified when He gives to the Father all things that are now made perfect by His work. And your salvation is just a little piece of, a grain of sand in that, you know? But if you understand that, then you understand your sanctification, your glorification, your salvation, all that, that is part of something so much bigger and greater than you. 
And the fact that you're even wrapped up in it is such a huge blessing. You know what I mean? And then, again, it's just, it gets you out of your little world where your problems seem so big and you start realizing God is doing something huge here. And then, then get back into the fight, right? And, and realize what's going on. So I just think that's always good for us. Uh, in Ephesians uh, 1, 13 through 14, um, I have for us to be in Christ, what must we do? Uh, and there's, there's three things listed in those verses. It says, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So for us to be in Christ, if you want to look on the human side of it, all these other things we talked about what God is doing, but we must first listen to his word. You have to listen. It's not optional for us. We don't read his word and go, eh, that might apply to some, but not me. We don't read his word and go, well, that's a good principle, but I'm going to figure this one out on my own. Whatever he says, that's, that's what we do. Secondly, uh, we must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ said, those who believe in me, he gives eternal life. So you must believe. You must believe not only that he died for your sins, not only that he is the king and the Messiah and the Savior and Lord of all things, but you have to believe that his concept and his principles on what marriage is and what husbands should be and what wives should be, what children should be and what parents should be, what communication should look like, what conflict is purpose for and how to avoid or walk right through conflict, all those things, you have to believe that his word and his will is perfect and best and we're going to submit to it uh, no matter what he says or no matter what we think. And then uh, thirdly, we must receive the Holy Spirit. If we listen to his word, if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he imparts to us his spirit, which gives us the ability to do any of the things we're talking about here. Um, Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, we know that all these things work out, uh, or those who love God, I'm sorry, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, and those who he predestines, he calls, those who he called, he justified, those who he justified, he also glorified. So that's the, that's the good news, that he is always doing that work, and he's doing that work perfectly. So if you belong to him, then everything must work out for your good, or God is a liar. If you belong to him, then he's doing all of these things, even in our marital difficulties, to conform us into the image of Christ, or God is a liar. If you belong to him and you are justified and you've been called, then you must be glorified or he is lying. And it's like what First uh, John says. You know, the one that says he has no sin makes God out to be a liar and the truth is not in him. So you have two options. You either look at his word and you go, no, he's right. I'm wrong every time. Or you got to realize at any point where you're just like, I just disagree. Your fight was with God. It's not with your spouse. It's not with the pastors. It's not with someone else. You're fighting against God. And that's always what we're doing when we're walking in sin. We're going, I just don't trust what you say. I think my way is better. But again, that, that's always a good stop point for me as I'm fighting my own mind and my own heart is realize every single time your fight is with God and it changes your perspective. If I got a problem with one of you, if I'm angry at you, upset at you, I don't like what you said about me, God has called me to love my enemies, to love one another, to be patient, gentle, and kind. So if, if I'm not doing that, my problem really isn't you. God used you to help me to see that I have a problem with him. I don't like the fact that this happened. And he's like, well, I ordained it. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to trust me and follow? Or 
You're going you're gonna to fight me. You know? So again, that's what, it's really good if you can see that. Your marital problems probably have much more to do with your fight with God than it does with your fight with your spouse. And that's just a good place to, to start and, to, uh, and, to, and to, to retrain your mind. So the conclusion here then, uh, is that what you got? Yeah, conclusion. The first fundamental is you must be in Christ. You have to be born again. Uh, you must be made uh, a, a new person. Your blank is person. You must be made a new person. You must be given a new power. And you must have a new pursuit. You have to be a new person. You have to have a new power. Say again. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you, and you, you now have a new pursuit. The purpose of this class is not to fix your marriage. The purpose of this class is to cause you to love Christ with all of your heart. And that, that is what will lead to a good marriage. And a good marriage may have a lot of trials and bumps and hardships along the way. Does that make sense? So a good marriage doesn't mean no conflict. A good marriage means when the conflict comes, we know how to glorify Christ through this. Does that make sense? Um, Apart from, uh, this is a quote from John MacArthur in his little book, The Fulfilled Family. It's a tiny little book. Basically, it does the same thing. It takes Ephesians, just runs through it. Actually, the more I read these little marriage books, that's what, that's what all the good ones do. They uh, usually go to Ephesians, usually start walking through Ephesians, and then they just hammer down on Ephesians 5 and the beginning of 6. Because that's, man, and then they, they pull in Genesis 2 and, and basics of marriage and all that, but... But again, if you start getting outside of that, and you start writing books that are too thick and too big, and it just gets confusing when the Lord's made it very clear um, how to, to do this. But he says, apart from the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no motivation for righteousness, no constraint from evil, and no real ability to obey from the heart what God commands for our families. That, then, is the essential foundation. Christ must be first in our hearts and in our families. And that is, is a solid uh, statement. Actually, we always say that when we do premarital counseling with couples, and we always young couples that are just, I mean, it's, it's always fun to do those things. Um, but, but that's what we always tell them. If you, tr- if you strive to love your spouse first, then you will destroy this whole thing. But if you love Christ first, if he's your first love, then no matter what each, other, each of you do to one another or, or you know, whatever trials come along the way, uh, the, the standard is always Christ, and you're always going to be able to, to, you're going to love your spouse. Even if your spouse isn't returning that love, you're going to love her or him because Christ loved you, and you have no option. You must love them. And uh, so if Christ is first, then you'll be working towards a, a solid, godly marriage. If your spouse is first, then you're working towards destruction. Isn't that crazy? So if you turn your spouse into an idol, you're going to destroy the very thing that you are striving to love the most. Um, and so uh, Christ must be first. Any questions on any of that so far? All right. The second fundamental foundation of a godly family is association. Association. And what I mean by association is association and active participation in the church. You must be attached to, immersed in, uh, submissive to and uh, uh, an active part of uh, the church. The reason is because that's how God has ordained it. Uh, it's just the way the Lord made it. If you're born again, you are a part of the church. And if you're a part of the church, you have an active role within the body of Christ. Uh, and, and, that is, and, and that's going to be part of, again, just how you live. It's going to be part of uh, godly marriage. Uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 4, 16, uh, basically 
gives us an explanation of how the church began. It gives us an explanation of how God has designed his church. And it tells us exactly what the church's purpose for. And part of uh, our, our, if you want to say individual lives or married lives or whatever it may be, uh, it's connected to that. You can't be outside of the church and have a godly marriage. And I I, I straight up think that the Bible, uh, you, you can't get around it. You can't be outside of the church. You can't be doing your own little maverick thing and have a marriage that is glorifying God. Now, again, we're not talking about missionaries that have gone out to foreign lands, and they're, but, but still, I think they're attached to the church. We're not talking about people that are, um, uh, you know, uh, at home uh, that are unable to get to church because they're on their deathbed. We're not, but what we're talking about is if you are born again, you must be actively involved in, actively a part of your church, both in submitting to your elders, both in loving others, pouring into others, and being poured into and there's no way that you're going to have a godly and holy and faithful marriage if you isolate your family and isolate yourself from the body of Christ. Because God has made us uh, to be a part of the church. In Ephesians 2, um, uh, 12 through 13, uh, he's talking. Here, he's really um, defining what the church is. The church is a new concept. And Paul is talking to Gentiles saying, you know, you were at one time without Christ. At one time you were alienated. Uh, from citizenship with Israel, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in verse 2, 18 through 22, it says, through him, through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So what he says here is before Christ, before you were in Christ, formerly you were, your blank is, formerly you were outside the fold. Prior to Christ, you were outside of these promises. You were outside of, of, uh, of the, the people of God. You did not have the spirit within you. Your eyes were not open to these truths. And you were unable to please God. I mean, those are things that, that we know from Scripture that are, are what we were prior to Christ. So formerly you were outside the fold. But now, he says, you've been grafted into the kingdom of God. If you are born again, then you have now been brought into the kingdom. You are now a citizen of, of God's kingdom, and you're part of his people, which is the, the next blank. Now you've been granted citizenship to the city of Christ. We are part of him. And again, perfect timing for us. We just read about the new Jerusalem, the city of Christ coming down. I mean, that is our home. That's where we belong. If we're in him, then we will be together for eternity. Again, you just think about the, the, the concept of the church from the big picture. We are brethren. We are wed together with Christ. We are brothers in Christ. The blood of Christ has washed all of us clean. The spirit of Christ fills us. We're one in him. It makes absolutely no biblical sense ever during this life to isolate yourself from the body of Christ. You are one. This is family. The family here is tighter than your your blood kin that are on this earth. Do you understand that? The spirit of God is eternal. Your blood family will die. 
And, and some of those people that you will be separated from for all eternity because they don't belong to Christ. But for all those who have the Spirit of God within them, we are welded together by His Spirit for all eternity. So, I mean, not only should there be a desire for us to be together, but we are dependent upon one another. He built us for one another, which is the next point. You've, you've been, now you've been adopted into the family of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. And the other thing we learn from those verses is now you've been made an essential part of the church. So part of having a godly family, you must be born again, and you must be immersed in, involved in, actively participating uh, in the church. That is going to be part of what causes, uh, or part of what will, will make your, your marriage and, and your family uh, grow in Christ. In Ephesians 3, he, gives, he goes on. He further explains the whole birth of the church, how the church began. Uh, he talks about the blessings of the members of the body, uh, being fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel in verse 6. And then if you look at verses 14 through 21, Paul prays for the church. He prays uh, for the believers. And look at what he prays. This is what he prays for believers. And this is the, the, the things that the Lord does uh, uh, for his people uh, through the body of Christ uh, this is the will of the Lord. He says, according to the riches of his glory, uh, Paul prays that they would first be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we need to be praying for one another. This is what we should be praying uh, for our marriages and for our families, that you would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next blank in verse 17, he says that we would be controlled by the will of Christ. Controlled by the will of Christ. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and again, that's not dwelling in your hearts in the sense that you uh, are being born again. He's talking about that Christ. It means He will rule. He will control your hearts, rather than you control based on your emotions or your understanding. You're letting Christ control. You're submitting to His control and His rule in your life. The next thing He prays for him is that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of God. And again, the, the idea that they would be both made into the image of God, be godly and holy, and that God would be filling and controlling them. And then finally, the last one is that they would do all things for the glory of God. So if you want good prayers for your family, for your marriage, I mean, pray these things. That I would be a man that is strengthened by the power of the Spirit, controlled by the will of Christ, filled with the fullness of God, and would do all things for His glory. Again, that changes the way you think. That changes the way you live. And these are the prayers that this is the stuff that, that uh, the, the, the Lord wills, and this is part of being a part of the church. So you need the church. You're dependent upon the body of Christ. He created you for this purpose. And if you just kind of want to sum up the whole purpose of the church, if you could just two little pithy statements, the church is here to evangelize the lost and edify the saints. That's it. So, Again, if you pull yourself away from the body, then you are purposefully removing yourself from the encouragement, edification, and admonishment that the Lord is providing for his people here on earth. That is the most foolish thing you could ever do. If you pull away from the church, you're also withholding the love and patience and kindness and affection that you are called to give to others, so you're living in disobedience to God. In other words, you can't be a part from the church. You can't be away from the church and a part of the church. Does that make sense? You say you're born again then you now have both a responsibility and a dependence upon the church. You have a responsibility to edify, admonish, equip, love uh, one another. Um, and on the other side, you are completely dependent upon us, 
or family. This is how the Lord works. I need you and you need me, and we cannot function properly when one of us is, is not doing the work we're called to do. So for our marriages, you must be a part of the church. Any questions on any of that? Good. <laughs> I, hope I, I hope it's good. <laughs> All right, the third fundamental foundation of a godly family uh, is sanctification. Sanctification. So you must be born again. You must be saved. You must be an active part of the church. You have to have that association with the church. Um, and here, uh, uh, you, must be, um, you must be living in holiness, living in righteousness. The third foundation is sanctification. It just means an ongoing, persistent pursuit of holiness and godliness. Those are your next two blanks. Your life must, must demonstrate or you must be striving for an ongoing, persistent pursuit of holiness and godliness. You can't just go take two biblical principles and apply them to two little areas of your life when your whole life isn't glorifying Him. Does that make sense? It's like when you know, uh, you know, we hammer down on, on, on one little thing in life, but we're letting all these other things fall apart. We're like, yeah, but do you see the good I'm doing here? Um, and, but, you know, and, and everything else is, is the not, follow, or not submissive to him. In order to do the things we're going to talk about, when we talk about being a godly husband or a godly wife, you must have a foundational life that is, that is following after him and you're pursuing Holiness. The first thing he says in Ephesians 4, and if you know the book of Ephesians, basically 1 through 3 is a lot of truth and doctrine, what we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, how we're born again, what we were in the old man. I skipped over that in Ephesians 2, the old that was dead in sin, then made alive in verse 4, and now we're in Christ, the church. So that's verses, or that's chapters 1 through 3, and then chapter 4, there's a pivot, and everything from that point forward, it becomes imperative commands. There's 40 imperative commands in the last three chapters of Ephesians. There's only one in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So the first three chapters are about who he is, what he's done, who you are in Christ, what the church is, and how you're a part of the church. And then he's like, so now what? 40 things in a row that you must do. Non-negotiables. Uh, uh, commands of the Lord. And the very first thing he says in Ephesians 4.1 is, Therefore, in light of everything that Christ is and who you are now in Christ, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner uh, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To walk in the Bible, unless he's saying he walked from Jerusalem to Samaria or something like that. Uh, to walk always means to, uh, it's, it's talking about daily, habitual, con, con, uh, continual living and habits. This is your conduct. This is your life. This is how you live your life. And so to walk worthy, worthy means equivalent to or equal to. I always told the kids, and when I taught through this years ago, I said it's like a balance. And, and, and the way to walk worthy is Christ is you put Christ on this side, and then you want to balance with Christ, fully knowing that you're never going to like, live perfectly like him, but that's the, the idea behind it. Your life should be worthy to the calling. that You, you say you're a Christian, right? You say you're a slave to Christ. You say you're a brother of Christ. You say you're a son of God. You say you've been born again and filled with the Spirit of God. You say you're a Christian. Your life should look like that. It should measure up. Does that make That's what he's saying. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So it's not the calling that you call yourself. It's the calling which you have been called. Christ called you. God called you out of the darkness and the light. God justified you 
through the blood of his son, gave you his spirit, and now God is sanctifying you. Because, again, there's no option uh, in it, what he says. All those he calls, he justifies. All those he justifies, he sanctifies, and he will glorify, right? Um, Christ says, every good work I began, I will perfect. So first, that's uh, uh, Philippians 1.6. Every single Christian is being made in the image of Christ. There's no, there's no carnal Christian out there that's just doing their own thing. We're all being made in the image of Christ. So if you claim the name, then walk worthy. Live worthy. Your life should reflect that. That's what he's saying. Yes. Uh, ongoing persist. Oh, holiness. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, that is walk worthy of Christ. Thank you. I forgot about the blanks. Walk worthy of Christ. Now you can flip over to all the stuff I was just talking about. <laughs> That's where Ephesians 4 1 is. Uh, and, and a worthy walk, basically, your blank is a worthy walk. Your conduct should match your calling. Your conduct should match your calling. And again, it's not optional for us. All of us are falling short. All of us see the holes and the flaws. All of us know that we've never lived a single day, probably a single second of our life, where our conduct fully matched our calling. And at the same time, that's the standard. Get back up and keep going. I used to always tell the kids in youth group, I tell my kids this, keep Christ the standard. You'll never get there in this present life. But you, but you keep getting, every time you fall short, you might, my love is here, his love is there. Get back up and keep loving. My gentleness is here, his gentleness is there. Get back up and keep being gentle. You know what I mean? You always keep running after him. One day, he will transform you and glorify you, and you will be made like Christ. But until then, keep him here. If you lower him to a standard you can achieve, you've just created your own little self-righteous religion. You're just a hypocrite. You're not actually pleasing him because you've, you've, you've lowered Christ to your ability and you've, you've got your own religion now where you can look at yourself and go, you know what, I'm doing all right. I do deserve heaven. You know, that's a horrible place to be. Leave Christ there. You just keep getting up and running towards him. But your conduct should match your calling. Um, uh, and then the next blank is faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. Faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. If we say we have faith, then we must be faithful to him. And we must follow him. And that's really what he's going to start describing for the next two chapters, all the way up until uh, we get to um, uh, the, the, the commands for husbands and wives. This is all about walking worthy, imitating God, imitating Christ, loving like Christ. It's, it's the imperative commands of what we're called to do. He explains the worthy walk in Ephesians 4, 2 through 6. He says, here's how you are to walk. Here's how you're to live. Look at your life, and here are the steps, if you want to say it that way. All humility. All gentleness, all patience, bearing with one another in love, always. Always being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is um, of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There's a lot of alls there. But the point is, it's a perfect standard that we're living and a perfect God that's filling us and he's brought us together in one body with one spirit and one calling and he's doing that work and he is filling all of us and he's going to make us all into the image of Christ. We're in it together. So here we are, the church. Here's the calling. We got one call. You're not called to be this way and I'm called to be this way. We're all aiming at Christ. Different personalities come from different backgrounds. We're different ages. We got different battles we're fighting. But we're all being conformed to the image of Christ. And when we see each other in heaven, we'll be like, oh, okay. Now I see who I am. I see who you are. We'll be made in the image of Christ. 
uh, and we'll be made like him. Uh, but all over and over it just means keep it perfect, keep it impossible, keep it like Christ, like we just said. Don't lower the standard. Keep the standard all. So again, don't look at, you know, we always assess ourselves better than we are until you put it next to a standard. I don't know if you've ever done this. If you've ever just hammered down on certain character traits that you feel like you're failing at, you know, or even ones you think you're good at. You know, you look at one of them, you're like, patience. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty patient. I mean, I don't lose my temper. And, you know, I don't remember the last time I've gotten really upset. And then you, but all you have to do is just try to practice patience for a 24-hour period. And I'm telling you, three things will happen immediately. First thing, you'll realize that you don't practice patience. And you're not as patient as you thought you were. You just haven't had the opportunity to do it. And so because you're not practicing, you just assume there was no problem. It's kind of like the car analogy, right? I mean, you know, your oil is low, but you don't check it. And so you assume everything's fine. And so you pull the stick out, and you're like, things aren't fine. I need to add oil. But it was working. And so a lot of times, because we don't have a trial, we look at our life, and we're like, I'm doing okay. You know, I really haven't done anything recently I think is displeasing to the Lord. All it takes is just a little bit of pushing. And so if you want your own self-made trial, just hammer down on one thing for a day. And you'll see real quick, I don't love very often. And I don't love like Christ. You know? So you'll see the negative. Secondly, you'll actually put it into practice. And you will, for that day, love more faithfully than you had loved prior. And so he is actually going to be doing a work as you love. Does that make sense? And then thirdly, that you'll see really quickly, is his love is so, so huge, so much greater than yours. You know? So if you just practice one thing for one day, and you've got a multitude of things to be practicing every day, but it'll, it'll at least put you in your place. And you'll see, I'm not as faithful as I thought I was. Uh, I did practice more faithfully today, and I'm thankful for that, and that he used that. And he is so much more faithful, and I don't deserve his love and his grace. You know? And that's always a, a good place to be. But faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. Make sure we keep everything at all. Uh, the next thing, the instrumentation of our worthy walk, basically in, in 4, 11 through 16, uh, what I meant by instrumentation there is just this is, this is the means by which that thing we just talked about, uh, all patience, all kindness, all that stuff happens. And again, we're back in the church. He's back to the church uh, in verses 11 through 16. And basically, he's saying, he starts out by saying that, um, you know, uh, the Lord's given us pastors and, uh, and, and, um, and preachers to uh, preach the Word of God. And then he talks about what the preaching of the Word of God does for us. Uh, and he says in those verses, actually, do I have blinks? I gotta, I'm, I'm losing my blinks here. Um, the first thing he says is the preaching of the Word of God in the context of the church is for the equipping of the saints. That's your blank. Equipping of the saints for the work of service. So the Lord has sent us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and here's the reason we have them for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The next blank is, uh, and, and to equip the saints, it just means to make them complete, to make them adequate, to make them sufficient. Again, you need that. What we're doing right now, I am teaching you his word, and it's his word through the teaching that's equipping you, making you adequate, sufficient, ready to walk out the door and practice. Does that make sense? Not that I'm, do, I'm, I'm me in and of myself have no power, but if I proclaim what he says, then his children will hear his voice, and he will convict, and you'll know what you've got to walk out the door and do. Does that make sense? So that's why we don't, we don't do a lot of application at this church. I don't know if you've noticed that. Some people are like, we need more application. I just don't think so. I think you need implications from his word. You know the application. Nobody has to look at you and go, you didn't talk good to your wife yesterday. You should go talk better to her. You know what I mean? It's like, you know when I say you need to lay down your life for her what you did. 
And you, it, 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 the Spirit of God convicts really quickly, and you know what you should go and do. Does that make sense? So we need the Word. We need implications. The Lord makes clear the applications when the Word of God penetrates our hearts like that. Um, I don't know why I got into that. The next part is building uh, up the body of Christ. Building at the body of Christ. So we preach the word. The word makes us adequate and sufficient and complete to build up the body. That just mean, It means to construct and to strengthen. So the preaching of the word causes us to, the things that we don't know, we're constructing these things in our hearts and our minds of, oh, this is what I need to be. This is how I need to act. This is what I should speak. This is how I need to treat my employer. And it strengthens the things that we do know. There's many things we say in here that you already have heard, that you know, but when you hear it again, it strengthens or reinforces. And so that's what the Word of God does. The preaching of His Word equips the saints. The preaching of the Word builds up, strengthens, and constructs the body. And then He says, and we're doing this until we all reach the unity of the faith. I left that one in there. I wasn't sure. <laughs> As I was doing this, I'm like, this might be way too many blanks. I don't know if you'd just be like, Meh. So I gave you a few. Uh, and we, until we all reach the full knowledge of the Son of God, until we all reach complete maturity in Christ, which means Christ-like holiness, and uh, until we all reach maturity. That's what he's saying here. So he says we need to have a unity of the faith, a unity in our full knowledge of the Son of God. That will grow us into complete maturity. You have to know what Christ is like, and then you have to follow. The more you know uh, about him and what his word says, the more you follow after him, you grow in maturity. And then he talks about discernment. And actually, this is a good verse to read. If you look at verse 14... Because he doesn't use the word discernment. He says, As a result, we'll no longer be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So, again, we can, all the other stuff is kind of straightforward. You know, unity of faith, uh, mature man, all that stuff. And then you get this analogy of a child, and you got wind, you got waves, you got all this stuff. But what he's talking about here is through the preaching of the word, through the practicing of his truth, you gain discernment on both just looking at the world, good and evil, right and wrong and all that, but then pull it down into your own heart and mind and then into your family. You begin to gain discernment on, on what you must be, where you're dropping the ball, what is good and what is right and what is true. You know, you read a book on marriage and you can discern whether or not that book is what the Lord says or, is, or, or something that some man made up. And you can look with your own words that are coming out of your lips or out of the lips of your wife, and you can assess that according to his word, and then you can uh, um, uh, know how to, to, to act or react in those moments according to his truth. Discernment just means acute judgment. It means to be able to distinguish accuracy uh, uh, accurately. So again, if you want to be a godly man or a godly woman, you have to know what he says. You have to put it into practice. And the more you do that, the more you will discern uh, just how to do that. Uh, and you, the more you'll discern uh, the actual um, things in your marriage that, that need to be changed. So it means to, to understand clearly and to have clear judgment. Um, oh, I had this in your notes. Uh, the discernment is a dying virtue, um, just like morality or character or integrity. Discernment is being lost in our culture rapidly. Uh, discernment is not something that can be easily attained. Uh, it can only be found, found through uh, uh, truth and practice. Again, uh, Hebrews 5.14 talks about that. Uh, a lack of acquaintance with the word and a lack of practice causes someone to remain immature, uh, both in their faith and in their, in their holiness. It doesn't, you, know, you can have an immature believer, but immaturity comes back to something. You know, either you're brand new in the Lord or you don't, you don't read and you're not acquainted with what he says. You don't understand it and you don't put it into practice. 
So maturity, again, maturity is not just knowing a lot of theology. Maturity is walking in holiness and godliness and then being able to discern uh, uh, what is right and what is wrong. Uh, discernment also provides protection from deception, and that's what we're talking about here. When he goes, when he talks about uh, stop thinking and acting and responding like children, he's saying stop being gullible, stop being tossed around. Every time there's a problem in your marriage, you're just over here, and then you're over there, and you're trying to fix it with this, or you try to do this, or you try to take her on a date, and it's like you're just jumping all over the place because you don't have any discernment because you haven't been practicing holiness, and you can't even uh, assess with accuracy what is happening in your family. Um, so stop being gullible. Uh, when he says you're tossed around, uh, he's talking about being tossed around by trials and tests. In other words, there's, no, uh, there's instability. There's not conviction. You have to have conviction, uh, both as a husband or as a wife. Uh, you have to know what the Lord says, and you have to be driven by the conviction according to his word. Uh, and you've got to be stable. You've got to be sound-minded and sober-minded. Uh, uh, tossed around by every wind of doctrine just means you're led astray by every, you know, again, you'll, you'll hear someone say this, well, this worked for my marriage, and you're like, okay, I'll try that. And then this person says, this worked for my marriage, you're like, I'll try that. And you read a book, and it says this, and you're like, I'll try that. And it's like, you're just led around every, every wind of doctrine, whatever people say. You've got to know what God says, and you've got to stand right next to that. So when the winds come, you know, well, that, that does, I'm not doing that. That goes against what the Lord says. Or, yeah, that's a great practice for you, but that's not a principle. That's just something that worked in your, your marriage. You've got to know what the Lord says. When he talks about being fooled by the trickery of men, it's talking about cunning tricks uh, and then being misled by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Um, it's it's purp- purposeful misleading. It's purposeful um, deception. Uh, and, again, yeah, the, that's the strategy behind all false doctrine or all fa- fallacy is uh, Satan strives to mislead, to, to, to misrepresent, and to cause us to be deceived by things that sound very good. You know, I always told the kids, uh, you know, Satan never shows up in a red jumpsuit and a pitchfork and says, hey, I'm going to lie. You follow me to hell. You know, he shows up as an angel of light, says something that sounds really good. It's almost biblical, and, and it's just, you trust it and you follow it. That's how deception works. It's very crafty. And so... Many things that are supposed to help your marriage may be the very thing that would be detrimental to your marriage, but the only, thing, the only way you'll know that is uh, to know his word and to be practicing his truth and gaining discernment. Uh, the method for building up the body of Christ is truth and love. Again, that's always what the Lord uses. Um, and then I'm just going to fast forward a little bit here. He keeps talking about, again, being a part of the church. We grow up in all aspects. Uh, the means by which he does this. Uh, is Jesus Christ himself. It says Christ holds the whole, whole body together. Christ supplies all that we need. Your notes are good. I'm, I'm just looking at my stuff. You stay where you're at. <laughs> Christ assures us. Christ causes the growth. So even all this stuff we're talking about, again, Paul, what he does is he, he demands they walk worthy. He tells them what to do, and then he reminds them that if you're doing this, it's still Christ that's supplying all of this. He's the one that supplies what each person needs for the whole body to work together. We just need to be faithful to do that. Uh, I have that quote there. The, this, man, this is from Harold Honer. Uh, this manner of life is far more powerful. Oh, wait, wait. Did we miss a blank? Yeah. Oh, that's discernment. <laughs> Acute judgment? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm about to hit put off. So your blank was discernment. The whole thing we've been talking about was that one word for your blank. Discernment <laughs> is acute judgment, all that sort of stuff. All right, now we're at put off, put on. All right, so uh, the next two blanks are put off the old, put on the new. After he talks about uh, walking worthy, he basically kind of dissects that and says, this is what it's going to look like. 
you've got to put away, and then you've got to put on. And then he just goes through a whole list of, of what Christians uh, should look like and what we put away. He says that we walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, those who are outside of the church, but we are to put away past worldly foolish thinking the way that we used to live, and we are to now put on Christ. Uh, he describes the Gentiles' way of living there. He said, I affirm with you that uh, walk no longer as the Gentiles. He says, in the futility of their mind, being darkened to their understanding, excluded from the life of God, with the ignorance that is within them, the hardness of their heart, they've become callous. Uh, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. That is just a description of how the mind and heart of an unbeliever works and what it produces. Uh, now, you could look at that and disagree, but now you've got to fight with God again. So this is what the Lord describes. We are apart from Christ. And I kind of gave you a little definition there of what that means. Uh, so we don't have to go, uh, we're not going to hammer down on all those, but basically the unbelieving heart or the, the mind outside of Christ, this is how it works. It, with futility, which just means empty reasoning. Darkness, it just means you're unable to see, unable to perceive what is good, what is right. Uh, you're, you're alienated from the life of God, so you're estranged from God. Uh, the ignorance in, in them, it means that the unawareness, they're unaware. I mean, think about that. Everyone that is not in Christ is heading toward eternal destruction. And God built them to know. I mean, there's, there's something built into them, but they are unaware. They're ignorant of, of what they're um, heading towards. And so we, we live in ignorance uh, apart from his truth and his word and his spirit. He talks about them, their hearts being hardened, and he, and he says the ignorance is because of stubbornness, um, and they have callous consciences. They're, they have no more sensitivity, no more shame, no more conviction, and they're controlled by their flesh. They're given over to the sensuality, so they're, they're willingly submitting to their own desires, what they want. Again, I mean, look at your life. I mean, you might be living this way. It might prove one of the things that may be wrong with your marriage is you're an actual unbeliever. That's a good thing to figure out and repent and come to Christ. Your marriage isn't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is God, and you need him. Or you can look at this and go, that's exactly, even though I do believe I know the Lord, I'm living like that. I'm living controlled by my flesh. I'm not living according to his word. I'm living with a callous conscience. I have no shame. I'm living in stubbornness because of the, my own hardness. So, again, this is, that's how the world walks. That's how Gentiles live their lives. But we, he says, are to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We're to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And then he starts to talk about what that looks like. First thing he tells them, they need to be renewed in the spirit of their mind. That means have your brain reprogrammed. I used to tell my kids in youth group all the time, you need to be brainwashed. You've got to be brainwashed. You want your brain and your mind washed clean with the Word of God so that you think like Him and you speak like Him and you see like Him. You want to be completely brainwashed by the Word of God. Anything less would be horrible. Why, why, why do you want to leave pieces and remnants of worldly thought and worldly thinking in your mind? You want Christ to control you. So you must be renewed. And then he says you put on the new man in the likeness of God. It's a new man, he says, that is created in righteousness, a new man that is created in holiness, and a new man that is submissive to and dependent upon the truth of God's word. That's, that's the guts of how to put off and put on. You've got to stop thinking the way that you think and think like he thinks. You've got to stop believing what you think is right and start trusting what he says is right. 
And you got to stop acting the way that you naturally act. And you got to start living the way he's called you to live. And then he says, here's what it looks like. He basically gives five concrete characteristics of Christians there in the next few verses. And the first thing is they, Christians are truthful. Your blank is truthful. He says you've got to lay aside falsehood. And you've got to speak to one another uh, in, in truth, in honesty, truthfulness, integrity, fidelity, virtue, honor. This must be the way you live. There can't be hidden things in your life. There can't be hidden things personally. There can't be hidden things b- between you and your spouse. So again, before you start being a, a man that lays down his life for his wife, are you living in dishonesty? If so, then put away that and put on truthfulness. Secondly, you, you have to be a man or a woman of patience. The second character is patience. He says, be angry and do not sin. Uh, do not let the sun go down your anger. You have to have self-control, discipline, patience. The third blank is generosity. He says, steal no longer, but labor hard and be generous. So you stop, stop uh, taking things for yourself. Stop stealing time. Stop stealing uh, uh, affection and stop stealing stuff from your spouse. And instead... Work hard and be generous. Give away. And I mean, this can definitely apply to, to money and to your job, but this can also apply to the way you're spending your time. It can apply to the way you're, you're just trying to get all of your um, emotions and your feelings met and all that rather than laying aside, stealing that from everybody else and begin to pour into others and be generous to others. The fourth one, the fourth one is encouragement. You must be a person of encouragement. That comes from Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome words, that's what you put off, Anything that is unwholesome, don't let it even come out of your lips. But only speak words, he says, that are good, that are needed in the moment, that give grace to those who hear. In other words, let all that comes out of your lips be encouraging and edifying. That can even be admonishment, but it's how you do it, with gentleness and with patience. And then he goes on to say, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Let bitterness, wrath, shouting, slander, all that be put away. Again, those are things that easily come up in a marriage relationship. And the final blank there is love. Be kind to one another, he says, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving one another. Look at this, just as God in Christ has graciously forgiven you. That right there alone, that one verse will turn your whole marriage around. That one verse right there, forgive one another, be tender-hearted, gracious to the same extent that Christ has done to you. All right, the final one, and uh, I'm seeing that we're not going to, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to fly. The fourth fundamental foundation of a godly family is submission. Submission, salvation, association with the church, sanctification, you must be walking in holiness. And fourthly, you must be submissive. You must be submissive. Submission to, uh, um, the first one is submission to Christ. So your next blank. You have to be submissive to Christ, submissive to the Spirit, and submissive to one another. Submission just means dependence. It's, it's absolute obedience, subjection, surrender, deference. Uh, it's founded in meekness and humility. You are not resisting your loyal and allegiance to Christ, and you're submitting underneath His will and His word. Um, so the first thing is submitting uh, to Christ, uh, and, and he says here, imitate God and love like Christ. Ephesians 1-2 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. So, the way that you walk worthy, the way that you put off, put on, if you just want to sum it up, be holy, imitate God, and love like Christ. Now, again, that ought to, you ought to immediately go, what? <laughs> but that's the standard, right? Imitate God, imitate Christ. That's what we're called to do. Yes, you will always fall short, but 
leave it there and keep imitating. Keep following in his footsteps. Keep striving to live and to love like he loved you uh, and, and to be merciful like he's merciful to you. And that is what is pleasing to the Lord. Secondly, submission to the Spirit. The next thing he says in Ephesians 5 is we must be controlled by his Spirit. To be Spirit-filled doesn't mean to speak in tongues and to do miracles and to all that stuff. That's just a a bunch of lies that the charismatic church is throwing out there to to make you feel like you're you're doing something good when you may not be doing anything at all. The way the Bible talks about being Spirit-filled, it means being Spirit-controlled. And then it defines it. And and the definition is not miraculous gifts. The definition is is, is, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Those are the things. It's mercy, forgiveness, grace, love. That is what it looks like to be controlled by the Spirit. It's when the Spirit of God controls our life. And he talks about it here and he defines it. Uh, it's being submitted, submissive to the Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit of God. He says that you will walk, it's the walk of the wise, the walk of the wise. If you are controlled by the Spirit, you will walk in wisdom. The first thing you do when you walk in wisdom is you carefully examine your conduct. To be Spirit-controlled is to carefully examine everything that you think and say and do. You're diligently examining your, your conduct. Secondly, actually the next uh, blank is diligent. Diligently redeeming every moment. Diligently redeem every moment. To be spirit-controlled is to take advantage of the time that the Lord has given you and striving to live in submission to His Word and to Christ and to His Spirit in those moments. You don't just live thoughtlessly. You're purposefully redeeming the time. And then uh, thirdly, to be spirit-controlled, spirit-filled, you must accurately know the will of God. There is no spirit-controlled person that is not submitting to his word. To be controlled by the spirit is to carefully examine your conduct, diligently redeem every moment, and to accurately know what his word is. And that is from Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he describes... Exactly what that is. And he says, you uh, being spirit-filled. The next blank is spirit-filled. He says, do not get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. Be filled or controlled with the Spirit. You'll see that because you will speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You'll sing, make melody in your heart to God. You'll always give thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus uh, to God, even the Father. Um, And then I left the last one off purposefully because we're going to hit that in a second. The con- uh, this next quote comes from, again, John MacArthur, actually from his Ephesians commentary. He says, The continuous aspect of being filled involves day by day, moment by moment, submission to the Spirit's control. Again, that doesn't come thoughtlessly. That doesn't come magically. That comes through diligent, persistent effort as the Lord himself totally does the work. It's not something we do but that we allow to be done in us. The filling is entirely the work of the Spirit himself, but he works through our willing submission to him. Paul Shirley, actually, this is a great book. Well, I've only read the first chapter, but I'm I'm loving it a lot. Uh, But in his book, uh, The Christian Home says, God designed the family to be spirit-filled, which is to say God intends for your family life to be directed by the Spirit-inspired truth of Scripture oriented by the Spirit-intended goal of sanctification, empowered by the Spirit-providing resources of grace. Your family will only be a means of grace when the Spirit's authority fills your Christian home. 
And the Spirit will only fill your home when you submit to the roles He has given to each member of the house. You can't be Spirit-filled if a husband is not laying down his life for his wife, sanctifying her with the water of the Word, uh, so that she is holy, spotless, and blameless. You can't have a Spirit-filled home unless the wife is submissive to her husband in all things as unto the Lord. You can't have a Spirit-filled home unless your parents, that are disciplining and instructing your children in the Lord so that they know Christ and follow Him. That's what a Spirit-filled home looks like right there. Isn't that awesome? Spirit-filled just means you believe what he says, you trust what he says, you submit to what he says, and you let him control you. Um, and then finally, submission, uh, submission to one another. Submission to one another in the fear of Christ. The last part of the whole Spirit-filled uh, description is being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's the opposite of independence, the opposite of individuality. It's the opposite of selfishness, pride, and enslavement. It's founded on humility and selfless love, and it means that you prefer others before yourself. You prefer others' interests before yours. You prefer others' good before your own good, and that is humility. That's counting others as better than yourself, and it's a mutual and willing submission, and that is the actual uh, uh, diving board from where the two commands for husbands and wives come from. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to husbands. Husbands, likewise, to your wives. But the way that we're doing that is very different because there's, a, there's a, an authority and a submission relationship there between husband and wives. But both should be submitting themselves to Christ and His standard and His word. And both should be self-sacrificing and submitting themselves to one another. It's a mutual submission. Submission is the single principle that sums up the character of a truly spirit-filled person. It is the key and capstone of the Spirit's work in our heart. That is the core of true Christ-like character. And it is also the single most important principle governing all personal relationships for Christians. That's MacArthur and his family-filled thing. So, you want a godly marriage. There must, submission must be the highest priority. Submission to Christ and submission to one another. Uh, In Paul Shirley's book, he says, If you want to be controlled by the Spirit, you need to submit yourself to the people he's put in your life and the order he has provided for those relationships. This mutual submission is done out of reverence for Christ, which means it acknowledges that Christ is the one who has put these people into your life. If you are not willing to do this, when you struggle to submit to those around you, it is actually a problem with submitting to the Spirit of Christ. Whether it's the government, whether it's your elders, whether it's your employer, whether it's your husband, uh, whether it's children with their parents, the, the, the relationships and the order the Lord has instilled in society and in our family and in the church are ordained by Him. And when we don't submit, we are not submitting to Him. Does that make sense? You've got to see that your fight was with Christ and not with another person. The last blanks here, um, and when it comes to submission, is uh, the first thing is submitted to the created order. Uh, you can just say the created order. The created order there is your blank, and it means that husbands submit to Christ. The wife submits to the husband. The children submit to the parents. That's just the simple created order. The husband submits to Christ. The wife submits to the husband. The children submit to the parents. It doesn't mean that children don't also submit to Christ and the wives don't also submit to Christ and that husbands don't lay down their lives for their wives and sacrifice themselves for their children. There's submission everywhere. But there is a created order in the family, and this is what it looks like. Secondly, there's mutual submission, what we just talked about. Mutual submission. All are submitting to Christ. All are submitting to one another. All are exemplifying Christ. 
when a, a wife submits to her husband, she is a living example of the submission of Christ to his father, the submission of Christ to others. She is she's exemplifying Christ in her submission. When a husband lays down his life for his wife, he is a living example of the submission that Christ uh, showed when he laid down his life for us and submitted himself to his father. Uh, when both parents sacrifice themselves for their children, uh, they're, 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 again, living in willing the submission uh, to, to their children, uh, sacrificing uh, for them so that their children will know the Lord. All of it is submission, but there's still a, a created order. And then thirdly, the ordered submission, kind of like what we said at the beginning, you've got husbands and wives and children. Your family must look like that. The children don't control the parents. The wife doesn't control the husband. The husband must lead the family. He does it through self-sacrificial service and love uh, by laying down his life, but he is the head of the house. So we'll talk more about that soon, but that's, those are the foundations. To have a godly family, you must have salvation. You must be associated with the church, plugged into the body of Christ. You have to be walking in holiness, sanctification, and fourthly, there must be, uh, you must be submissive. There has to be submission. Thank you, guys. Uh, any questions? I would love your feedback, like I said. I mean, you don't have to give it to me right now. You can send me an email. You can come up here, too, and be like, uh, but I, I, I want to make this better. Um, and uh, so thank you so much for listening. I hope that was a blessing. You guys have a good day.